him. Please open your copies of God's Word to Psalm 17. To Psalm 17, and we'll read together the first half of that psalm, verses 1 to 9. Verses 1 to 9 of Psalm 17, a, a prayer of David. Psalm 17, a prayer of David, and reading from verse 1. Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come from forth, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me. O God, incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of, thy, of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings." from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. Amen. Amen. And so as we see in the, the uh, inspired superscription, the, that, that which is written just above verse 1 is in the Hebrew, it's in the inspired text, and we normally read a psalm of David, but this is very clearly, we know by the contents, having read just little over one half of this psalm, it is a prayer of David. It's a, a deeply mournful prayer, if not a protest, against David's enemies. We'll see more of that in the second half. But essentially, he's complaining that he does not deserve to be persecuted with the oppression that he is suffering and deeply suffering from these people. There is a harshness, there is a cruelty that we will see as we look in the second part. And what, what we will see in the first part is a number of times that he says this, they have no right to abuse me and to accuse me. They are his enemies without cause. And therefore David is pleading to God to protect him and to deliver him because of his innocence. Now, there is no further historical information that we have as regards to uh, this psalm. The superscription is very short, uh, just it is a prayer of David. Uh, there's nothing in the psalms that's referred to, quoted, alluded to anywhere else that would then fix a historical point in time. But we know that the two points in his life as was, was the rebellion by Absalom, and then many years earlier, uh, the deadly um, persecution by King Saul 
against him. Either of those two are probable cause of these deep complaints. So firstly then, very briefly, uh, we see the plea of a broken man in verse 1. The plea of a broken man. He's broken, he's, he's oppressed, he's, he's weakened. We'll see that as, we've, as we work our way through and we've already had that idea from those verses that we read. Verse 1 though, Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. And so he, he opens up, David does his prayerful psalm uh, with these four related phrases. These four phrases he comes out and says, but they're all linked. And he says, hear the right. Now, hear the right. It's a bit of a challenge to translate hear the right in this verse and the things that are equal in the second verse because it's a literal translation of, of the word. And so we have to try to understand what does right mean. Well, it, the word is literally in the Hebrew righteous or even translated as justice, but righteous. So hear the righteous. He's, you therefore can understand that he means hear the righteous one. And that would seem to be the correct uh, translation. Hear the, the righteous one. Hear the prayer of he who is right in thy sight. Because why? Because David is such a good person in and of himself and not in the slightest. He is righteous by faith alone. And he who is righteous by faith alone is claiming an audience with a heavenly king. And he declares his innocence. And this is, this is a, a, a theme of the first few verses. Hear the righteous. Hear the right, O Lord. And that's what he does. He declares his innocence because he is justified by faith. A gift of faith. And then when that gift of faith is granted uh, to the sinner coming to faith, uh, he receives that, that faith, what happens immediately is, is uh, at the same time almost, it's only next in logic, is that the grace of justification is granted. And what does that justification mean? That's what he's speaking about, justification. The just, the, the righteous, that grace of justification means what? It means absolute forgiveness, absolute acceptance, absolute oneness, atonement, meaning that, and a permanent and bold access to the Lord in prayer. The gift of faith causing justification before God. And so, hear the right, and then he goes on to say, O Lord, attend unto my cry. Well, we've just considered that. In fact, both of those two middle phrases, attend unto my cry, and there are subtle differences, but I would like us to move on quickly this evening for the sake of time. But essentially, they say the same. Lord, attend, uh, give, give notice, look towards, we could say, but then the idea of attend is also to wait upon. Uh, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer. So not only hear it, but give attention to it. The earnestness of his prayer. We could say, therefore, he's saying the same two things twice, proving his great need. Help me, help me. Have mercy, have mercy upon me. The emphasis of repetition, which we'll know from our own lives of prayer. 
And then he moves on again, and this is related to the first phrase, not out of feigned lips. Feigned meaning false. Um, We could say hypocritical. We could say sinful. But lips that, that commit fraud. He's saying these lips that I'm praying with are not lips that lie. David, as we just said, he's justified by faith. And because he is a true believer, what has God's Spirit done within his life? He has sanctified his life and he sanctifies, sanctifies his lips. And David is not an habitual liar. And where he's caught in a lie, as every believer must do, is to repent and, and do away with that sin. So he can say this, that his prayer, his lips, his prayer is unfeigned. It's a, it's a true prayer coming forth out of true lips. No fraudulent words are here. No false accusations in his prayer against anyone. Uh, These are true accusations. These are true complaints. As he's coming straight in, and this happens a number of times, and we've already noticed how many Psalms, as we've come up to Psalm 17 so far, the majority are David dealing with with griefs of the heart, uh, griefs in his life, um, enemies, many enemies. He has many enemies. This man, after God's own heart, has many enemies. And that is, that is the, the case with all that would live godly unto God. That there will be great persecution in their lives. Not all the time, not consistently at such a harsh level. But we know that when that does happen, when we do have these difficulties, when we do have challenges that we can come to the Lord and pour out our heart before him as he is beginning to do in verse 1. The plea of a broken man, we move on then to the hope he holds to in verses 2 to 4. The hope he holds to. He prays unto the Lord and then he says in verse 2, let my sentence, that is the judgment, come forth from thy presence. He trusts God's judgment because David not only is sure of his own innocence, not that, he's, not that he's sinless, but he knows that he has come before the Lord. He has repented and he trusts that the Lord will forgive him for having come repentantly. He has hope. He has trust. He believes in the Lord. And so therefore he can claim his innocence. He knows the motivations of his own heart and therefore he knows he's not coming to the Lord laden with sin. And if he, was to come to, if he were to come to the Lord laden with sin, then again he can pour his heart out before the Lord and confess his sins and see that the Lord would cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And therefore, in this situation where he has enemies uh, all around him, as we, see, as we see described to us in verse 9 and from verse 9 onwards, He trusts God's righteous judgment in the whole situation implicitly. God will see that justice is done. God will know my mistakes. God will know my naivety. God will know my innocence. And God will know their mistakes, their foolishness, and their wickedness. And he trusts God to judge him. And implicitly, he knows that the Lord is a righteous judge over all the earth. And therefore there'll be no unrighteousness, there'll be no favoritism, uh, there will be no false judgment. 
He does not fear the Lord's judgment because he fears the Lord and loves him. And that sentence, as I mentioned, is, is the type of judgment that a judge would give, the, the sentence that is passed by a judge at the end of a case, having found guilty and not guilty, that is that word. That my sentence, my judgment, mishvath um, in, the, in, in the Hebrew, the word that's used for judgment, even for condemnation, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. He's, he's looking unto heaven uh, for that help that he needs. He's looking unto the Lord and, and trusting the Lord to deal with the situation. David also said at, at another time, and probably later on if we consider this is at the time of Saul, in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 14, David has this lesson deep in his heart. And it says, And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. Because he trusts God's judgment. He does not trust the judgment of men over him. And then as we go to the second part of that verse, it says, Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. And it's essentially praying that the Lord will examine David, will examine his enemies, that the Lord will have his eyes wide open to all that has gone on, and that the Lord will deal with absolute fairness and equity. That's really what it means there, that the Lord will work with um, justice, fairness. You know, the image of justice, uh, it's it's an ancient symbol of, of, a, of a lady who is blindfolded, justice is blind, and then holding the scales, the idea that the scales are equal, there's no imbalance, there's no favoritism. Uh, that's a, a worldly understanding of what justice is, but this is what David is, is saying in, in, in this way, let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. It would also point not only in the way that he judges, but the, the fact that the Lord will look upon with favor those who walk according to his, his word. That he will behold pleasingly the things that are equal because his eyes are too holy to behold that which is uh, wicked. And let us learn from this then that we also should have short accounts with God. That where we perceive sin in our lives, where somebody else perceives sin uh, and they have made a comment that we should carefully and prayerfully examine it and have short accounts with God. Swiftly repent of sin. Swiftly repent of those things that displease God so that we may maintain a free and open and guiltless fellowship with, with God. And that we too, like David, can plead our innocence. So, Lord, I, I am not guilty of these things. But imagine then that we, we, we trust that we have an innocence before God and we come before the Lord and we realize, hang, hang on, no, I'm not completely as innocent. There is something in the background I'm, re- I'm remembering in the back of my mind that what am I to deal with? How can I then claim my innocence? Well, then I come and I repent and I seek the forgiveness of God and then I can plead my innocence because... My conscience has been cleansed and the blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all sin. 
And so then we may plead our innocence when we cry out to the Lord for all our needs. And if it's going to be similar as David for judgment and for protection. So David trusts God's judgment implicitly, but he also knows God's diligence. And this goes on in, in some ways to, although it's a separate sentence, to talk, to talk about God's eyes. The eyes that behold the things that are equal, the things that are fair. Thou hast proved mine heart. Again, we have, we have a, 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 a number of phrases all piled upon each other to explain something of David's experience uh, and assurance that he is innocent because he is firstly he's a man tested thou hast proved mine heart prove us into test David knows that God knows his heart and that God has tested his heart we know that man was a uh, that David was a man that had many tests in his life at various times before the kingship and during the kingship he knows that God knows his own heart and the private desires maybe secret sins that God knows his true motivations and he still trusts God. He knows that God knows his, his weaknesses and his failings, but knows that God does not reject him, be, be, reject him because of them. He's also a man that's visited, we read there, in thou hast visited me in the night. What does he speak of? Well, he, he has also known something of the Lord rousing him up out of sleep or holding back sleep from him and therefore causing him to, to wonder why am I not able to sleep? Is there, is there again unrepented sin? Is there someone I need to pray for? Um, must I now come before the Lord? Or, or he's held sleep back from him because he is to pray through a certain issue. This might even refer to dreams or stirrings of his soul by the Spirit of God to humble him, but more especially to revive him. That the Lord had visited him in the night with the stirrings of the Spirit in his heart. So he's a man tested, a man visited, but a man on trial because again, David knows that God is ever testing and trying all of his, all people, we should say, and all of his people especially. Everything's a test. Everything in life is a test, that you could say for the Christian life, and it is. And yet again, David, by faith, here declares his innocence. Thou hast tried me, and shalt find nothing. His, his copybook, as it were, has no more blots on it. And finally, he's a man with a purpose, because David, knowing that God will find nothing, is because of his diligence. He's an example of that diligence that he is purposed to live a holy life. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. An example here of, of, of self-control over the sins of the lips. So we have the lips, we have, we have the eyes uh, coming back again. Uh, and again, reminds me of what David also wrote in Psalm or sang in Psalm 141 and verse 3, I think a very, a very well-known verse. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, keep the door of my lips. That is his prayer and this is 
in Psalm 141. And they're his purpose to do that. And he acknowledges his innocence as well, we see in verse 4. Again, that's coming back a few times. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. And so David is a man who has kept short accounts with God, has regularly repented of the sin uh, that he finds in his life when he commits it. He knows that there's no sin clinging to him. There's no offense between him and God whom he is petitioning. And so he goes on to say essentially this, as regards sinful man's behavior, by keeping to the word of God, I've avoided dangerous sin and the curse and punishment for it. That sums up uh, the verse 4. So we've seen the plea of a broken man and the hope he holds to. Thirdly, the strength he seeks, we see in verse 5. He says, hold up, sustain my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. David as a man and David as a believer, although he was a great man, was humble enough to be well aware of his own weaknesses. And the tribulations, the troubles, the difficulties that the Lord had brought into his life have caused him again and again to see that truth that he is weak. He's not as great as he thinks he is. And the Paul the Apostle also had to learn that, that, that very lesson. It's a lesson we all need to learn. And 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, we read from the Apostle Paul, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And that's what we understand when we're reading Psalm 17 and verse 5. He's he knows the dangers of life's circumstances and he does not trust in himself or his own strength. And again, that's mirrored by Paul who says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Not relying upon the arm of flesh, but trusting in the Lord, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Looking to God to give that, that strength and that grace at all times. Because it is when we think we're able and we think that we are strong, we do easily slip up. Because human pride swells, uh, a, swells us up into what we might call a sinful uh, independence from God. It's not a true independence, of course, because uh, without God sustaining us, we wouldn't exist. But when we are allowed by God's grace to uh, perceive and understand that we need the Lord to sustain us and to help us every, every moment of every day, it humbles us. It puts us, shall we say, back down into our right place. And when we are put down into our right place, it means that God is exalted into his right place, that he is God, and that he is to be exalted. To use New Testament language, he is to increase, we are to decrease. We in our place, God in his place. 
And therefore, then we are enabled to be helped because we seek help. We ask and we receive. And God is able to help because we seek it and are willing to receive it. In general, taking nothing away from the sovereign work of God. So the plea of a broken man, the hope he holds to the strength he seeks. And then we come uh, to the petitions of faith. The petitions of faith. There's a few petitions that we see in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. This is a past help is a present comfort. A past help is a present comfort. And as we calmly read this psalm, we might think that verse 6, we look at verse 6, we say, well, isn't this, is this not in many ways a repeat of verse 1? Again, I, have, I call upon thee, looking to the Lord to attend unto his cry, to ear, give ear to his prayer, etc. Seems to be very, very similar and maybe unnecessary repetition. But David is actually in the situation. He is in that, that position of need. He's in the emotions of anguish. He has enemies round about him. And so therefore that, that repetition is not wasted. It is not unnecessary repetition. And in his need, David, when he says this, when he says these things, these petitions, these statements, is, he's encouraging himself and he's as well making a confession of faith. And this is a very oft-repeated scriptural truth. We will see this often in the Psalms, that the believer is to be mindful of the Lord's mercy and help in times past, and that is to give us comfort in present difficulties. It's a source of comfort. He has promised to help me. Then I called upon him and he kept that promise and helped me. And therefore now in my present difficulties, I can trust him again that I once again call upon him and once again he will help me. Many, many places that we could point to in the scriptures and especially the Psalms that, that, that teaches that most important lesson. And so therefore with renewed boldness, having quickly meditated, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me. He then now has renewed boldness to send up another petition, incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. He has no other help. He has none other help. And so he calls upon the Lord. So a past help is a present comfort, but a present plea for future comfort because he goes on in verse 7. He says, Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. So David now goes on. He's talked about his innocence. He knows that he is forgiven of his sins because he trusts in the Lord. But now he moves on to give a second motivation why the Lord should hear his cries. It's because God loves him. Firstly, God has forgiven him. And now God loves him. 
the love for him, the love for all of his people. And so his thinking is, God loves me, and therefore God will save me. And, and even in times of trouble, he will strengthen me, he will sustain me, he will hear my, my every cry. For as it says, for God is a God of salvation. He's a God that saves lives. He's a God that saves, saves souls. He is a God that saves his people, even from their physical enemies and ultimately from their spiritual enemies. All those that put their trust in thee. And therefore we are really to put our trust in the Lord actively. We know that faith is a gift, but we are to use that gift. We are to stir up that gift. We are to exercise that gift and pray that the Lord would increase that gift. That we are to trust him, trust his word, take his warnings to heart, take possession of those promises, answer all of those things that he says to us, call upon me in the day of thy need, and then we answer and we call upon him in the day of our need, as David is doing here. The plea of a broken man, the hope he holds to, the strength he seeks, petitions of faith, and then finally the cry for swift and effective action. Because he's not really wasting time. He's not just having a moment of, of, of spiritual connection, although that's certainly part of prayer. Prayer has a purpose. Prayer is the prayer coming with petitions, with needs before the Lord and, and as is the expression, doing business with God. And we see these things in verse 8 and 9. 9 is, is the context for verse 8. 9 is saying that there are wicked that oppress me, I have deadly enemies, and they're, they're all around me. In other words, there's no way out. I can't see a way out of this situation and this problem, and I can only look up to heaven, to God, to save me, and to help me in this situation. That's the context. And then, then the pleas that he has, is firstly, he's revealing by the eye of faith and the inspiration of the Holy Ghost two aspects of God's protection, and we close with these thoughts. First, a, a reflex action. Because he says to the Lord, keep me as the apple of the eye. What is the apple of the eye? Well, we have an expression in, in, in the English language taken, taken from the Bible, taken from the Hebrew, um, that somebody is the apple of your eye. And, and we mean that somebody whom we love greatly, that we cherish greatly, somebody very important to us. And, and that meaning is certainly meant here. But it also means something else because the apple of the eye being the pupil of the eye, we might think it's a strange expression, but it is what it means. The apple of the eye is the pupil. So we care greatly for our eyes. We care greatly for our eyesight because we know how valuable, uh, how immeasurably valuable our eyesight is to us. It's a wonderful gift and, and to think that you would have to, to lose it is a terrible thought. Now, when we're considering the eye, then we can think of the great natural protection the Lord has given to the eyes. We may not think that it's a great natural protection, but the eyelid itself, the eyelid itself, itself that shuts very quickly. 
and, and the tears that we have to, to wash the eye and to keep it clean and to get the dust and the dirt out of it. And so the natural uh, protection that the Lord has given is in these great reflexes to protect our eyes. So much so that if, if, if the optician wants to look at your eye and, and shines these lights into it or even comes close to it with one of those machines that you think are never going to stop as they're coming closer and closer, is that the, the eyelids want to close and you fight against that reflex, but they want to close and as they will close, as they close tightly shut, they pull a lot of flesh all over the eye to protect it. So it's not just a, a thin layer of skin, but there's a lot more there to protect the eye. But together with the closing of the eye, there's the reflex of the head to move away very violently from whatever's coming towards the eye, and then arms to come up to protect whatever comes to the eye. And all, none of these things we have to think about. Think, oh, you know, there's somebody's throwing a, a ball into my eye. What, what, what should I do at this moment? We don't have to think about these things because our thoughts are not quick enough to deal with, with a stone heading towards our eye. No, God has built those reflexes in. And so what the Lord is saying, firstly, that God will cherish him, but God will protect him as, if God, as God would protect his own eyes. It would be an instinctive reaction. It would be a quick reaction to protect and defend because we're precious we're also protected. And as it were, the Lord will just do it to protect his own, as our own eyes are protected by the Lord's built-in reflexes. So we have that, that reflex action that we're looking to the Lord, protect, come swiftly, protect me. In my weakness, there's, there's something very, very weak and vulnerable about the human eye. There it is at the front. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's not hidden away anywhere. It's there. It's visible. It's easy to see. It's easy to destroy. And yet the Lord has granted it these reflex protections. Secondly, we see the Lord's protection as a motherly protection. A motherly protection. He says, hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Now here we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ presented to us as a protective mother hen. Protect me. Hide me under thy wings. As, as, a, as, a, as a mother hen would hide her chicks from the outside world, and this is something that they, they still do, the chicks would just run underneath the wings and be protected. And there's the mother hen ready to peck at anything or, or be aggressive towards anyone that would approach or harm her chicks. There's nothing more dangerous than a mother to protect her babies, uh, whether in the human world or in the animal world. And, and that says something then that we may consider the rage of the Lord against those that would harm his own. And now David calls upon the Lord to be his loving place of refuge because the idea of of um, thy marvelous loving kindness is, is expressed also in, in this imagery. Because Christ himself called upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem that they would find in him their dwelling place and their loving place of refuge. It is therefore a picture of Christ when we consider this. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. And Christ, as it were, answers that and says, and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, 
How often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. And so, believer, we too have a place of refuge, a, a fortress, a present help in times of trouble and distress. And this fortress, this refuge has a name, and he is a loving and a protective God and Savior. And he is so humble and he is so meek that he's not ashamed to compare himself with a mother hen. And therefore that encourages us that we can come at all times to a great and mighty God that extends himself in a humble way that we may easily approach. Yes, we know he is the eternal king, that he's high and lifted up, that his throne is far above all creation. There is nothing in heaven revealed in the world, word that is above him as a being. He is high and lifted up. And yet he will come to you with such kindness and such love and to answer all your needs and all your fears. And therefore, we, we also must come before him uh, with our sins. We must come before him for the first time if we're still in our sins and if we are believers to come for the cleansing from our daily sins that we may also say with, with David, with the psalmist, uh, that we are innocent. Our prayer goeth not out of feigned lips, that, that there is innocency to be found in our lives. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, again speaks of him that calls with a gentle voice to those who are laden with sin. He says, Come unto me, all ye that, are la that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And so we are encouraged as saints to come before him in prayer and as sinners to come before him uh, to, for cleansing and new life. Amen. May the Lord bless his word uh, to us for the sake of time. We will not sing. We will close this portion of our meeting in prayer. Our Lord, we do thank thee once again for thy word, the truth in it the great and merciful God revealed in it, uh, the winning encouragement that there is to come to the Lord, even for the first time. But we have that sweet encouragement to the people of God to come and pray and have sweet fellowship with the Lord and cast our cares and our fears and our needs upon him, knowing that he careth for us. Thou carest for thy people. And Lord, we may we come to thee and Lord, we may know that our sins are forgiven and that there is no wrath and there is no curse. There is nothing that stands between us and thee. And Lord, where we're careless regarding daily sins, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so, Lord, as we come to our time of prayer, we pray for thy help and thy blessing to be upon it and to help us that we may glorify Christ and we ourselves may be found more humbled. So we pray for grace to this end. 
and that Christ will be glorified. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.